We're in the middle of a chapter. Israelites are rebelling against the Lord. A march had ensued from Sinai with all sorts of hopeful and promised uh, promise, uh, mindsets of land flowing with milk and honey and victory over the enemies of God to come. And with all of this hope and all of these promises, they are consumed with strong cravings, entitled and discontent. And all of that forms a deadly combination. It produces grumbling and delusions about what their life before the covenant at Sinai was like, what their present circumstances are really like, and it diminishes their view of the future. They were tempted to look back at Egypt with great fondness. Never ceases to amaze me that they do this. They needed really the words of Matthew 6.25. Don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink. And the reason this wisdom is ever helpful to the people is here, here an Old Testament community of Israelites completely undone in their devotion to the Lord by being consumed with what they will eat and what they will drink. From Exodus you see this. From Numbers they see this. They need the exhortation of Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. The Israelites needed this exhortation because the living as a kingdom of priests and a heading toward a promised land to be light for the nations, this was not on the forefront of their concerns, but rather lamenting their placement in the wilderness. Even though they were traveling from Sinai and would not remain in the wilderness, they were heading toward a promised land. They spoke as if Egypt was such a great place. We see here in verses 16 to 20 of our passage, um, the Lord's first response to Moses. There will be one more word from the Lord in verse 23 with Moses in between these two little units. But first, the Lord's response and what has happened is a smaller complaint recorded in verses 1 to, seven, one to 3. I'm sorry, 1 to 3, a complaint without specific circumstances, just general discontentment and misfortunes as they see it. But then something more specific in verses 4 through 9, a, uh, a lament about the manna that the Lord had given them. And even though it tasted good and they could use it and appropriate it in various ways, they come to the door of their tent and they would weep rather than rejoice at more manna. In verses 10 to 15, where we left off, Moses' response is to join the grumbling of the people, right? We tried to see this morning that um, grumbling and murmuring can be contagious. And even though Moses' content of his complaint was different, it wasn't about the food, he began to grumble about the people who were grumbling about the food. And, um, and he began to think of himself as, well, really, I'm the one whose shoulders are carrying this whole thing. And it's too heavy for me. These people are too, uh, too, uh, too much for me. And if I have favor in your sight, will you just strike me down? The Lord's response is in verses 16 to 20. He says to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. The instruction here matters because earlier in Exodus, chapter 18, a situation arose of dealing with disputes among the Israelites. And at the time, 
when they were in the land of, uh, right coming up to Sinai, Moses' father-in-law Jethro had an idea. And in Exodus 18, here's what he's told. Um, we're told he tells Moses, I, your father-in-law, I'm coming to you. And uh, Moses tells his father-in-law the whole situation and feeling overwhelmed. And Jethro says, well, blessed be the Lord who's delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh. And uh, he says in verse 19, I will give you this advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. You shall warn them about statutes and laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they're to do. But look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy and hate a bribe. Place these men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and of tens and judge the people. Uh, what ends up happening is a gathering of elders to, um, to help Moses administer the needs and fulfillment of those needs for the people. That way Moses is not having to deal with all the disputes and all the complaints, but rather uh, a whole uh, small army of leaders. And they're called elders, not necessarily because uh, it's the same as the New Testament office of elder, but because these were people who were likely older in the community that had garnered integrity and, uh, and honor as their reputation. They were known as people who would pursue what was just, what was right. And in living uprightly, they would be examples to the community. Their words would be words of wisdom. And if, if they heard the, uh, the disputes and complaints among the people, they would listen with discernment and be able to give the right judgment. And therefore, they were an aid to Moses. When I read Numbers chapter 11, um, my, my uh, interpretive instinct is to say this is the same group of people. When he says, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, I think what he's calling for is not a, re, a restart and a clean slate, but rather talking about that same important situation that now is transferred in the middle of their march of needing help and how he has earlier benefited from elders among the Israelites. And he says, these would be whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. If they've already identified many of these people in Exodus chapter 18, I think it's likely that here you have that same situation, probably same names. Now, I know it doesn't say that, but uh, Moses has benefited earlier from this. It seems reasonable to imply the same situation and same group. Um, it was Jethro's advice earlier. It wasn't given in Exodus 18 as a word from the Lord, and that's okay. Moses uh, benefits from the sound counsel and wisdom of people in his midst. That can be a way that the Lord leads and guides. Uh, we, uh, we see something a little different, though, in Exodus, uh, in Numbers 11. In Numbers 11, this is not Jethro's advice. This is actually a direct word from the Lord. Gather those men, the elders of Israel, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand with you. The reason is God is going to endow them with a sort of portion of the spirit. All right. And there's some mystery as to what this involved. Um, I'm going to try and suggest some plausible uh, ways to think about this. But in verse 17, the Lord says, I'm going to come and talk with you there. And I'll take some of the spirit that's on you and put it on them. And they'll bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. 
Again, we have a situation where Moses has a logistical and practical set of circumstances where he needs help. Well, what has benefited him earlier when such circumstances and logistical needs were present? Groups of elders and leaders. So let's gather them. Let's go to the tent of meeting. And the Lord is going to pour out his spirit in some measure. According to verse 17, he says, I'm going to take some of the spirit that's on you and put it on them. Now, we have to be careful... In using human language here, what we mean, it's not as if Moses will be diminished. He's going to be the mediator of Israel. He will still talk with the Lord at the tabernacle. Those things continue. I think this is a way of saying in not so many words, I'm going to give these people a a kind of authoritative spirit endowed, empowered role like I've given you. So I'm going to take what I've given you and I'm not taking it from you as if you will now lack it, but you will now share more than just you with now the people, this uh, authority, this leadership. This seems to be a giftedness to discern and lead, to make judgments, to be able to uh, recognize the needs and how to meet them best. In verse 17, the Lord is going to pour out his Holy Spirit in this particular way. I don't think this is necessarily about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We think about this in New Covenant community. We think about the New Testament promise fulfilled that the Spirit of God indwells the people of God as the temple. But it seems that in the pre Um, It seems that in the days of the tabernacle and the physical temple, there was a sense in which the Spirit of God dwelled in that holy place and not, in my judgment, a indwelling of every individual Israelite as we would see in the New Covenant in the New Testament. There is some disagreement on this throughout church history. People have tried to sort through what is the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the Old Testament saints. I think it's right to say that the the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament community regenerates those who are believers, but not necessarily indwells them, though I could be wrong. This is a matter of of, uh, good arguments on both sides. Nonetheless, there seems to be in the Old Testament giftings and givings of the Spirit to empower, to um, encourage, and to equip And if that's the case here, then what is needed are a group of leaders who will be especially equipped for the task. Moses is told, bring these men to the tent of meeting. That's the idea here. Moses is going to have, again, responsibilities shared among gifted and discerning and empowered people, empowered by the Lord himself. In verse 18, say to these people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who will give us meat to eat? Two subjects are unfolding right in front of us. One, Moses' need for, again, logistical and practical help among leaders. But it's not just a matter of leadership that is at play. There have been weeping and, uh, dare we say, even gnashing of teeth among the camp of the Israelites. And they are, you know, didn't give that latter phrase, but you wonder. Um, you, you do see these very hungry, strong, craving people. And Moses is told, give them a word as well. Tell them, you need to consecrate yourselves. You're going to have meat. For you uh, have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who's going to give us meat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. If this is a word given to the people and they're going to prepare their minds, their bodies, probably ritually speaking, they're going to make sure they're not doing anything unclean. They're going to receive meat from the Lord. And at first, 
without going all the way through the story as readers, we might look at this and say, well, this is going to be some relief to these people. I mean, they have been just murmuring and complaining. It's been a long pattern of this or from the days of Exodus. And now at last they're going to have some meat. They will be very relieved. Their cries will cease. We have to hold that thought, though, because sometimes what uh, we may realize as sinners is that getting what we want might not be in our best interest. It actually might not help us spiritually. It might actually reinforce a kind of fleshly craving or attitude that needed to be repented of, not fulfilled. And in this case... The desire for quail, that's not like a sinful desire. It's not like we should look at this and say, all right, well, a moral imperative here. Let's not desire quail. Now, you might not anyway, but uh, that's not because you took your cue from Numbers and said, I don't want to happen uh, in my life what happened here. In Numbers 11, the issue is their rebellious heart turning from the Lord who has amply provided every morning with manna. They are scoffing at the provision of the Lord. This is a high-handed rebellion. It's quite shocking. It's deeply disturbing, and it should be. In verse 18, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. But how much? Well, here verse 19 gives us a little bit of insight into what's coming. We're not talking about for dinner. We're talking about here not just one day or two, not even five days or 10 or 20, but a whole month. To such a staggering degree, he says, that it comes out your nostrils. Now, that is a way of saying, I'm going to pour out meat in such supply that uh, your wide eyes are, are not going to be able to take it all in. It will become loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him. Notice the Lord's interpretation of the people's attitude. How does the Lord interpret what has happened? In his sovereign, infallible words, he says, you have rejected the Lord. Does that mean every single Israelite is living in rebellion against the Lord? It does not mean that. Um, The book of Numbers will speak in generalities about large swaths or groups of people, which do not imply every single individual. And we have to keep that in mind because a great plague is going to come upon the people of Israel and you will see people die near the end of the uh, the chapter. That will not mean every single Israelite has perished either. Rather, these are large, substantial groups of people. And he says in verse 19, you have rejected the Lord among you. And have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? Moses, the leader, had already explained all of this to them in Exodus. They were going to go out to worship the Lord. They were going to go to a mountain and hear from the Lord. They were heading to the promised land given to the forefathers by covenant word in Genesis. They say, why have we come out of Egypt? Have they not been paying any attention? What about the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That's why we've come out of Egypt. What about the steadfast faithfulness of the Lord to give them that land promise to the forefathers? These people who ask questions like, why did we come out of Egypt, are not thinking in the forefront of their mind what it is of the Lord and his covenant promises that's guiding this whole thing. They're just thinking about the leeks and the onions and the cucumbers and the whatever else in Egypt. Now in verse 21... In verse 22, Moses' response seems to be also about the practical working out of this. So you say, Lord, that you're going to give meat. And to the whole people, right? Okay, well then, I just want to observe in verse 21, the people among whom I number are 600,000 on foot. 
And you've said, I'll give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Okay, okay. So, is this going to be because flocks, herds are going to be slaughtered? And would that even be enough? And then Moses suggests in verse 22, what about all the fish of the sea? What about just all the fish? Not just some of the fish, but all of them. All the fish of the water. Uh, Would that be enough if gathered together? Now Moses is still, it seems to me, not in the best frame of mind. And, And while the Lord has said, here's what I'm going to do, Moses is saying, but how can you feed those many multitudes? One writer puts it this way. Moses notes that even their full cattle, sheep, goats... All that they brought forth out of Egypt, including the totality of the fish, would seem insufficient to quell their ravenous appetites. The Lord's response is poignant and no further elaboration given to Moses about this matter. Verse 23, the Lord has a question for Moses. Moses has asked some questions. Moses, let me ask you a question. Is the Lord's hand shortened? And what this alludes back to is the miraculous wonder-working hand of the Lord in the book of Exodus. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the hand of the Lord. And in the hand of the Lord in the, in the book of Exodus, you know what you see? Plagues upon Egypt, a deliverance of the people of Israel, the walls of water standing up for the Israelites to cross on dry ground, shortened hand language would be a negative situation. If you just imagine someone, you come across them and they're in a deep pit and your heart is just going out to them. Here they are beneath the ground in this sunken area and you need to get them out. And so you, you lie upon your stomach, you, you reach out your hand, but your arm is short. You have a shortened arm and what that means is your reach simply isn't deep enough. Your desire is there. Your intent is good. But, you know, the thought that counts uh, might be true in some circumstances, not in getting somebody out of the pit. Okay? I mean, you're going to get them out or you're not, no matter how well you're intended. If your arm is too short, you cannot rescue them. It's a matter of your position and ability and power. Is the Lord's hand shortened? So the Lord's question for Moses is, am I lacking in ability? Do you see this situation as beyond my reach? So if I have said to you, I'm going to feed all of this people and for a whole month, and you're looking at this and say, I don't know how. Moses, is the problem with you don't know how, or is the problem my power? Is the, arms, is the, uh, the uh, Lord's arm shortened? The answer, of course, is no. Moses' understanding and responses here have much to be desired. The problem is not the arm of the Lord. He says, now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. And in verses 24 to 30 and in verses 31 to 35, these next two units touch on what's been unfolding in chapter 11. We first have the gathering together of elders and the pouring out of God's spirit. And then we have in verses 31 to 35, the matter of the quail that's poured out. The Lord is giving things. That's what the last section of this chapter is about. The Lord's giving things. He gives of his spirit for those up near the, uh, the tabernacle. And then he gives quail for those who are willing to go to a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on that side. Here is the 70 elders in verses 24 to 30. So Moses went out and he told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. 
Around the tent is probably something like a semicircle fashion where they are in front of the tabernacle's opening. These are not people who are going to be Levitical priests. They're not going into the tabernacle, but they're outside and around the tabernacle to symbolize visually here are the people drawing near to God to have some sort of empowerment by the Spirit of God. And it says in verse 25, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. I wonder what this would have been like, what this would have felt like, what it would have seemed like. And for those outside the tabernacle, what they must have understood to be going on within. The Lord comes down in the cloud and speaks and he takes some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. So this is a narratival way of trying to say, all right, Moses has been equipped by the spirit of God. He is a sinner, but the Lord is using him mightily. And now God will use this group of people to help Moses at this stage as well. As soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they didn't continue doing it. There seemed to be some kind of uh, onset, though temporary onset, of activity. What did this involve? Well, no more information is given. So I can wonder about it, and you can wonder about it. And you say, well, what does it mean that they prophesied? Well, in, in, in the New Testament, when the Spirit gives words of prophecy, they're able to articulate and speak things that not only build the people of God, but speak of what is to come. And because of coming judgment near the end of chapter 11, perhaps these people not only were going to aid Moses, but they had insight even onto what the Lord's judgment would be in short order. It's impossible to be more specific, right? We're just thinking on how these people have been equipped to discern and implement the will of the Lord among the people. It's some kind of outpouring in a subgroup and an onset of some kind of activity. And what I think we can notice is they didn't continue doing it because the validation of the Spirit of God had done its work. In other words... They have experienced something, are equipped for something, and whatever this activity of prophesying involved, it was sufficient to prove the Lord has confirmed them as the elder group. What, what arises next within the same unit about the elders is something else in the camp that, come, that, uh, is, that Moses is made aware of. In verses 26 and following, there are two people who seem to have been registered, probably among those 70 elders, and yet they didn't go to the tent of meeting entrance. This is odd, all right? Now, um, Eldad and Medad. We don't know about these guys beforehand. I don't know anything about their background. And Eldad and Medad after this, we don't know what happens with them. This is, this is a, a, a sudden, all right? It seems very sudden and spontaneous mentioning and brief touching on these two uh, characters for this story. Two men remained in the camp. That means they didn't go to the tent meeting entrance. They remained in the camp. One was Eldad and the other was Medad and the spirit rested on them. Well, maybe what you thought it would have said is that they didn't go to the camp. So while they had been identified as the elder, the Spirit of God did not rest upon them because they didn't go to the entrance. But surprise, they didn't go to the entrance and the Spirit of God did rest upon them. So they seem to be validated and confirmed by the Spirit of God's outpouring that even though they weren't at this particular place, the Lord's Spirit is not limited to the entrance of the tent. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. So they prophesied in the camp. And there's this young man, he's unnamed. He goes and he tells Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. 
And out of all the hundreds of thousands of Israelites, I'm always amazed when someone says these obscure names and Moses knows, okay, here are these names, okay? Sure, out of all these many hundreds of thousands, Eldad and Medad, they're prophesying in the camp. Next to this situation in verse 28 comes Joshua. I haven't heard about him in a while. The first time he's introduced is in Exodus 17. After the exodus from Egypt, after the Red Sea, they're heading through that wilderness. Joshua is featured as a character. He's a young man. He'd been assistant of Moses from his youth. And he says, my Lord Moses, stop them. My Lord Moses, stop them. And this man, well, he was a servant from, of Moses from his youth. Um, I, should, uh, I shouldn't say he is a young man, as we might think of young people. Um, Joshua is going to have, be the successor of Moses in the book of Joshua. But he has this concern here. He wants Moses to intervene. This could have been very awkward in the actual on-the-ground carrying out of this request. Now, my Lord Moses is not a blasphemous thing. The word Lord is simply used there to show respect and esteem from Joshua to Moses. So nothing wrong with that title used in this particular way. But he is asking Moses to do something that Moses will refuse to do. Now, Now, Joshua seems to think this will be best. Moses disagrees. He says, Moses, you need to stop them. They weren't at the tent when when they began to prophesy. And Moses says, well, is this an issue of jealousy? Now, I don't know what Joshua's response was, but in verse 29, Moses' question is, are you jealous for my sake? In other words, here I've gathered the 70 elders. Are you bothered by the fact that they are prophesying after not coming to me at the tent? Is this about me, in other words? Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Sometimes the book of Numbers will use language like would that. That's not starting a question. You know, would that be okay to eat? Would this be okay if we did this? This is an introduction of an exclamation. Would that is used equivalent to I wish that or I would love if this was the case. Would that all the Lord's people. This simply means I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Moses sees here a validation of an empowerment of these people by the Holy Spirit. Moses says, I would love if it were the case that it were for everybody in the camp. This seems to foreshadow what the prophet Joel will later prophesy that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. That the nations, that men and women, that young and old would experience what it means to know God by the Holy Spirit's presence. In a way that is individual. In a way that's not just God's presence among a group or a gathering, but something that I think we can link to the fulfillment of the new covenant. And that in the book of Acts, you see an outpouring of the Spirit that is shadowed many centuries earlier here by the Spirit of God coming upon a group of Israelites, but much more would be intended. Uh, Some have even wondered if uh, the story in the Gospels uh, might recall this episode in Numbers chapter 11. I have in mind a story that Mark tells. It's in Mark chapter 9. And there is a a, uh, conversation with Jesus because people have been exercising demons. 
And this story in Mark chapter 9 and in verse 38 goes this way. John says to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. Because he wasn't following us. Jesus said, don't stop him. For no one does a mighty work in my no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Jesus is saying, this is going to be all right. This will work out. So don't, don't intervene. Jesus says, for the one who's not against us is for us. For truly I say, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Not only does Mark 9 talk about this story, Luke 9 talks about this story. And in both cases, the story tells us that Jesus receives these people who are concerned about activity happening away from Jesus' physical presence. And it seems to be reminiscent of people who are saying we're concerned in Numbers 11 about prophesying happening apart from Moses and the tent of meeting entrance. And Moses says, that's okay. This is the work of God, isn't it? And the work of God is not tied up exclusively with Moses, but rather the sovereign dispensing of the spirit of God according to the sovereign will of God. It's not limited to the person of Moses or even the place of the tabernacle. It also reminds us of the Apostle Paul, who had people that were not favorable toward him preaching the gospel in Philippians chapter 1. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, and others out of goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing I'm put here in prison for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, thinking to afflict me. Well, what then? He says only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, that Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Could the situation have been improved as far as Paul could discern? Well, yeah, things could have been better regarding the hearts and ambitions of certain preachers. But the work of God advancing and going forward, Paul could even rejoice in that. Because in the end, Paul knows it's not about Paul. And for all of Moses' flaws that we've seen already happening in Numbers 11, a breath of fresh air comes to pass when Joshua seems to object. And he says, Moses, you need to stop these people. And it's if Moses is saying, but Joshua, it's not about Moses. And the Spirit of God is at work. Are you jealous for my sake? I would want all the Lord's people to be prophets in this way if the Spirit of God would be upon them. Verse 30 ends the scene. Moses and the elders return to the camp. They return empowered. They return with wisdom. They return with the Spirit of God ready to further and ably and capably lead and help and assist for the needs of the camp. But then the Lord sends something else. Here what I want us to notice is the distance difference. The Spirit of God has just been poured out inside the camp at the tabernacle. The quail, by the wind of God, are going to be poured out outside the camp. This seems to be geographically significant. Because to approach the camp of Israel and to draw near to the tabernacle was to come near to the presence of God, for the blessing of God, to draw near to the favor of God, the welcome of God, the house, the tabernacle that has the lights on and the table set with bread. To leave the camp was to go to the realm of the unclean, to go to the realm of the corrupt and the dead, to go to the realm of outcast and exile. And the Lord says, essentially here by the quail's arrival, I'm going to put the quail out there. This seems geographically significant. Let's hold this thought then. In verse 31, 
Then a wind from the Lord. And I want you to know something that your English translations will obscure by using language like wind and spirit. Wind and spirit are good translations, but you should know they come from the exact same Hebrew word. That the spirit of the Lord or the wind of the Lord acting in Genesis over the waters to part or to give life is the same original word. So the spirit of God that's poured out and the wind of God that brings the quail is the same act of God. This is not wind apart from God. This is the work of God. A wind from Yahweh sprang up and brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. Now, the people are in the camp, and you'd think that if it was to be just a matter of convenience, it would fall like, you know, a drone delivering a package right in front of the tent of every one of the Israelites. You know, they're at the tents weeping, and it had just been great. If just a little present from the Lord, you know, the quail with a bow on top of it just descends in front of all the entrances. That's not what happens. The quail lands beside the camp, and not even close. It tells us in verse 31 about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. So if the people were to go out to find these uh, quail, they would find quite an enormous pile of them. Interpreters of the Old Testament have thought about this language, about two cubits above the ground. One view is that the quail by the wind were brought very low so that the people could grab them easily. Here they are hovering about three feet above the ground. But the language, and not just here, confirmed later in Psalms, I think, seems to suggest that this is not quail just flying low, but actually brought low to the ground in piles, multiple feet high. This is a miracle. There's nothing normal about this. Nobody would look at this situation and be like, yeah, we've seen something like this before. No. Nobody's seen anything like this before. This is an act of God. The spirit and wind of God. This is a miracle. And yet at the same time, wrapped in judgment. We'll see this in a moment. There is this setting in in Psalm 78 that recalls our passage. Psalm 78 doesn't recall only this. There is a a history uh, overview, but um, zeroing in to the passage we're at tonight, you see in Psalm 78, 23, that God commanded the skies and opened the doors of heaven and he rains down manna to eat and he gave them the grain of heaven. And then in Psalm 78, 25, man ate of the bread of the angels and he set them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by his power, he let out the south wind and he rained meat. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas, and he let them fall in the midst of their camp all around the dwellings. And they ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. And then I'm going to stop reading from the Psalms because it's going to explain in summary what we're about to see in our Numbers passage. We have then around the camp, not within, but around and beside, in quite a large number of hours of journey, to get to this food that is stacked. And here we see in chapter 11, and in verse 32, the people rose all that day, and all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. There is an eagerness here that we should see. Because every morning in the camp of Israel is manna. They don't go a day's journey to go gather any of that. The Lord gives it with the dew of heaven and not hours and hours of walk outside the camp. This suggests to me 
how thorough and committed a group of Israelites are to getting meat. They're going to walk, and they're going to walk a long way. And it tells us they went a day's journey. And in verse 32, all night, the next day, they're gathering quail. Those who gathered the least gathered ten homers. Now, the other thing you need to see here is not just the commitment of these people to get their cravings satisfied, but the greed. I want the greed to stand out to us. The manna would come every morning. And here there is such an extravagance, a lavishness in their response. It says that they gathered and the least of them who gathered, gathered 10 homers. Now, we don't measure things in homers. Um, What I've uh, discovered in uh, research about this is that this is a dry measure. And it is an estimate at the low end, one homer equivalent to about 100 liters, but possibly as much as 200 which means you could be gathering up to 2,000 liters, if we're doing dry measures, which the, the homer was, of, uh, of quail. And we see them in verse 32, those who gathered least gathering 10, which means there were others who didn't gather this as the least. Some who gathered far more. Now, I mean, they're traveling. They're having to carry all of this back. I don't know how prepared they are for this because it's not like it's in visual distance. They're going to have to travel and travel to finally see this extraordinary outpouring of meat. And it tells us they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. One person suggested that they are doing what ancient Near Eastern people would sometimes do with bird meat, and that is dry it in the sun to create a kind of jerky, quail jerky, maybe. That could be what we're reading about here. So in verse 32, that's going on. But that's not, the, that's not what we see in chapter 11 as the first thing happening around the camp. This is happening around the camp. This is at the end of the chapter. You know what was happening around the camp at the beginning of the chapter? The fire of the Lord in judgment circled the outskirts and and perimeter of the camp. And what's interesting is these people with their craving so committed to it, traveling all this way, and not even just to get a little bit of meat, but to absolutely pile it, they go to the place where the judgment of God had fallen. They go to the perimeter of the camp, the outskirts of the camp, the place where the unclean are sent, where the lepers would be exiled. They they say, we will go there. We will leave the camp of Israel. We will go far from the tabernacle because there's meat. It gives you a sense of their lack of wisdom and discernment, of their consuming craving that has overtaken their senses. This is not good. And then in verse 33, while the meat was between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. We have here a subset, don't we? A subset of people, those who had made the walk to the place where the judgment of God has fallen, who have said to themselves, that is where we will travel, that is where we will get food, even though the Lord in His kindness and faithfulness had provided in the camp, morning by morning, all of the mercies of the manna for the people. That is not what these want. They have rejected the Lord. So in rejecting the Lord, what they have sown will be a reaping of being rejected by the Lord. If you reject the Lord, you will be rejected by the Lord. And the Lord's judgment will fall. The way it's worded is that the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and he struck them down with a very great plague. This is the same word. It's related to the same word in Exodus of plagues sent upon Egypt. 
If they loved Egypt so much, then how about a plague? How about a plague on the outside? I mean, they so want and identify with these people that they had been delivered from and all the foods and the the God is their stomach kind of thing that has just craved uh, and longed for. And now they are experiencing a very great plague from the Lord. It's judgment. I think this signals and confirms that these are wicked people who have rejected Yahweh, right? We would equate those things that rejecting the Lord is to display one's wickedness and unbelief. And that in their unbelief, they are perishing, receiving what they thought they wanted. But man doesn't live by quail alone. Man needs the words of God, but they have defied the words of God. They reject Moses They've angered Moses, in fact, we saw in chapter 11. They're ready to go back to Egypt. They are willing to leave the covenant promises and blessings of the Lord to forsake the encampment and the march with the tabernacle and the holy things. They're ready to set aside their entire Sinai experience as if that was just another day at the office. And they're ready to go back to Egypt. And therefore, in rejecting the Lord that they have now sown, they will reap rejection by the Lord in judgment. And they will experience a plague. Various speculations exist about what this plague involved. Was this a kind of food poisoning? I mean, the language doesn't say that the meat was tainted. It just simply says that while the meat was in their mouths before it had been consumed. You know, when I think about food poisoning, you know, you eat the meat, you consume the meat, and it takes some time to work into your system, and then all goes wrong. Uh, But nonetheless, we see here that it's in their teeth. it's It's as if... They might imagine, we finally got what we wanted. An image that comes to mind is some of the horror stories you hear sometimes about Black Friday sales gone wrong on, the, on those mornings where you have customers who are in line and they're after something and they think, this is what we want. And there's the, the, perhaps the attitude and the shoving and the, and the seizing and the greed that seems to consume the faces of those that are uh, sometimes caught on video treating one another in such ghastly ways. And you think to yourselves, is this what it has become? Like to you at bottom is that you're being driven by a kind of appetite that don't you see? We're watching it destroy you. And here, the cravings for meat seem to signal a deeper appetite for enslavement to sin, unbelief, and wickedness. And the judgment of the Lord and the meat in their mouths demonstrates that their sin and their longing for Egypt will destroy them. There were a lot of people who left the Israelite camp then who never came back. It was a one-way trip. They thought they were coming back with all this meat. It tells us they named the place. We saw that this morning, didn't we? In verse 34, they named this place. The name of that place was called Kibrot Hatava because there they buried the people who had the craving. The language, the word Kibrot Hatava here means the graves of the craving. The graves of the craving. It's an ominous name. It's like, what's the name of your town mean? Graves of the craving. You know, the reason we named it that is because of uh, all the people we buried who craved and perished. In verse 35, from there, from Kibrot Hatava, the people traveled to Hazarot, and there they remained. When I look at a story like this, and not just in our passage tonight from verses 16 forward, but all of chapter 11, we have seen, haven't we, that there are Israelites who have developed instincts 
of rebellion, instincts of murmuring, patterns that you notice going all the way back to the days in Exodus. We've seen as well that sinners can delude themselves in a couple major ways. They can diminish how severe their sin is, and they can minimize how great the Lord's deliverance is. Minimizing the severity of their sin, minimizing the greatness of God's deliverance. These are people who think back to Egypt, and they think, not that bad. And given the manna of the Lord and the faithfulness of the Lord, it's something that they scoff and weep at with repulsion. The delusion that can set in into the minds and hearts of sinners can result in those kinds of things. Minimizing the severity of sin. Minimizing the greatness of God's deliverance. I think we've also seen in this story what I mentioned this morning. The Lord is slow to anger. But when the Lord's anger is displayed, His anger is always righteous. Never over the top. Always righteous. Always fitting. And that if they want to reject the Lord... Well, then they will be rejected by the Lord. They will reap what they sow. We've also seen that there are Israelites who have tested the Lord continually as if their open rebellion is insignificant. We can certainly see at the end of this quail and plague episode, this unit, that the rebellion and testing of the Lord is not insignificant. It's very significant and heavy. And the people of Israel have gone into the wilderness and they have faced the temptations of hunger and they have failed. And you can fast forward in the biblical storyline to the enemy of all of God's people who comes to the Son of God and he says, Ah, you've been fasting for all of these weeks. You must be hungry. You should tell these stones to become bread. And it's a hunger test. And Jesus has been tested in the wilderness, he's been fasting. And the question is, if Israel was in the wilderness and their cravings led them that in their delusions they would do what was wrong against the Lord and wrong against neighbor, what about Christ who has come to accomplish the redemptive plan of God? Well, we're told in the Gospels that he is tested in the wilderness, but he will not go the way of Israel. He will not fail. Where Israel was unfaithful, Christ is steadfast and unwavering and faithful. It is good news. He overcomes the temptations of the evil one. And we also notice in the book of Acts that the outpouring of the Spirit of God that was foreshadowed here in Numbers 11 is applied to the multinational, multi-tribal, multilingual church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are those marked by the Spirit of God. We don't think primarily about a tabernacle building or a physical temple building like in Solomon's day. The New Testament says we're the temple of God. And those earlier places have met their newest uh, installment and fulfillment even in Christ. Outside the camp, there is judgment in Numbers 11. Inside the camp, where the people of God are, and drawing near to the tabernacle, there is provision and outpouring of spirit and leadership and wisdom. Geographically, that seems to matter. The cravings of the Lord, it can lead you away from the people of God. Away from where you should be, and away from the blessing of the Lord, and away from the words of God, and into a place where what would make the most sense with those decisions and placements is judgment. We rejoice that in the book of Acts, the Spirit of God is poured out on God's people, marking us as His own, having received in Christ Jesus, the one who is manna Himself, the Lord Jesus incarnate from heaven. And we don't face then the kindling fire and plague of the Lord. 
We rejoice that the cross was the place where our shame and our transgressions were paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. The meat, if you will, will not be between our teeth as believers and we perish in our iniquity. Instead, we will not die in our sins because the Lord Jesus died in our sins. Let's pray.